Uh, our call to confession this morning, it's not printed in your bulletin, but it's in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, familiar verses. And, and I want to say that, um, that when, I, when I lead through the order of worship and when I consider uh, a text to use uh, to kind of bring us into uh, the call to confession, um, the thoughts that are going through my mind is I, I, I want to think of something uh, or, or, or go from a text that kind of encourages us, um, brings us into that time, uh, moves our minds and our thoughts and our hearts in that direction to be ready to come before the Lord and to lay our weaknesses and our burdens and our sins down before him in confession. And um, really, when you look at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, I, I can't think of a better, a better verse uh, to do that. The writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we think about those verses and as we think about the, the idea of being encouraged to come before the Lord, like I said, I, I can't think of anything that would give us more encouragement to do so. I think sometimes maybe what, what, why we would be discouraged or why we would not want to come before the Lord is we would want to maybe cover up our weakness, right? We'd want to cover up our struggles, hide our difficulties and our temptations. We don't want to necessarily be honest with them, and maybe that's uh, because we, we don't think that God would be uh, necessarily happy. I mean, if that's a word we, we could use. I know that I've felt that way at times where you think, well, certainly the Lord's not going to be pleased if he really, truly knew how awful and weak and difficult I, I am. But the fact is, one, he already knows that far better than you and I know that. And even though he knows it, he encourages us to come to him all the more. And he encourages us to come to him all the more, not only because he knows our, our weakness cognitively, right? He's not aware of our weakness just because he's, he's omniscient and he knows all things. He's, he's aware of our weakness experientially. Right? That's, that's the beauty of Christ as our great and perfect high priest is that he's come in the incarnation and, and in the incarnation as he took to himself uh, human flesh, he experienced, the Bible says, every temptation that is common to man yet without sin. And so he knows our weakness, not just because he knows our weakness, he knows our weakness because he partook in our weakness, he partook in our difficulties, he partook in temptation yet without sin. And so the scriptures say he's able to sympathize with us. Uh, which means that when we come before the Lord and we bring our weaknesses and our sorrows and our sufferings and our sins and our temptations before him, uh, we don't come uh, concerned that he's going to reject us, he's going to despise us, he's going to mock us, he's going to kind of shake his finger at us and go, really, again, this, again? No, he's not going to do that. In fact, what the writer of Hebrews says is that because we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, we can come before God in confidence. We can be honest, we can lay down before the Lord our weaknesses, our sorrows, our sufferings, our temptations, and our trials, knowing that as we do, we're not going to find rejection or being despised. We're going to find grace, and we're going to find mercy to help us in our time of need, because the Lord knows that we are needy. The Lord knows that we are weak, and the Lord loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son to experience our weakness, yet without sin, so as to redeem us, to save us, and to bring him to himself. So as we come before the Lord this morning in confession, I want us to come, as the scriptures call us, in confidence, knowing that we can lay all of our weakness before the Lord. He will not reject us. He will not despise us. But in Christ Jesus, he will give us all grace 
and mercy necessary to help us in our time of need. So if you are able this morning, please kneel with me as we confess our sins. So we, uh, we need to be people who learn from our experiences, uh, people who uh, grow and mature. And I'm trying to, to emulate that, to model that, to learn from my experiences. And so when I sat down uh, looking at Genesis 25 earlier on in the week, uh, I had an idea of which way I was going to go and how I was going to preach it. And then the more I got into it, the more I realized I was going to start preaching two sermons. And I've learned already not to take too big a chunk of scripture and keep you here for too long. So we're actually going to be looking only at the first part of Genesis 25 today. Uh, and we might actually use the same scriptures for next week because they go really well with the second half of Genesis 25 next week. But uh, we're only going to be looking at the first 18 verses of Genesis 25 because Genesis 25 really is a transition chapter in the book of Genesis. Uh, in, in Genesis 25, Moses is, is bringing uh, to a conclusion uh, the narrative of Abraham, the story of Abraham that began earlier in chapter 11. And uh, he's transitioning us now into uh, the story of Isaac and his offspring. In fact, we see that transition take place in verse 19, where it says, these are the generations of Isaac. We, we mentioned as we came into this study of Genesis that that's a phrase uh, that Moses uses at several points uh, throughout Genesis to move us really from point to point. And so we want to give our attention to the first 18 verses and take a look at how uh, Moses brings this story of Abraham to a conclusion, how the life of Abraham kind of comes uh, to a conclusion. And we want to look at it uh, with hopes of uh, being encouraged and also being challenged uh, to be believers like Abraham, people of faith like our forefather Abraham. So look at the first 18 verses with me. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asurim, Letushim, Lemumim. I, I, I'm the one that chose the passage. It's some difficult names. The sons of Midian uh, were Ephoth, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubine, Abraham gave gifts. And while they were still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last, and he died in a good old age, an old man full of many years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth. Nebaioth, the first of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nephish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over and against all his kinsmen. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, and we're thankful for the opportunity to gather into, uh, together, uh, Lord, to worship you, to glorify you, to honor you, to sit uh, under the teaching of your word. We pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom this morning, that you would open our eyes 
our ears and our hearts to see and hear and to receive your truth, Lord, to walk in obedience to your word. Father, I do pray that you would guard my mouth this morning, that I would say only that which is edifying for us, your people, Lord. And I echo uh, the prayer of John the Baptist, Father, I must decrease and you must increase. So increase this morning as your word is proclaimed, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So again, as we're transitioning here in Genesis 25, preparing to move into the next major phase of the story of Genesis, we want to pause for a moment and take a look at how uh, Abraham's life is brought to uh, conclusion, right? Uh, to say that Abraham is a major biblical character is kind of a major understatement, right? Abraham is the patriarch of the people of God. He's been described in the scriptures as a friend of God, as a prophet of God. And maybe most importantly, Abraham stands as the prime example of what faith in the Lord looks like. If we remember Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul picking up on the importance of this in his uh, exhortation to the churches of Rome in Romans chapter 4. So if there is any truth to the statement, it's not how you start, but how you finish then looking at the life of Abraham and how it comes to con uh, conclusion and the emphasis that Moses gives to it here in the text is of great importance to us. It's extremely purposeful for us. And as we look at the way Abraham's life or his story here comes to an end, I think it does so emphasizing two primary realities that marked his story throughout Genesis. And those two realities are Abraham's faith and God's faithfulness. Abraham's faith and God's faithfulness. So as we look at these verses here this morning, uh, what we do see and see in Abraham's faith and God's faithfulness is we see how understanding one, namely God's faithfulness, helps us to better understand the other, namely, namely Abraham's faith. And then in doing that, that helps us understand what it means for us to be people who are called to have faith like Abraham. There's times where uh, we use words, especially within the church, that they become almost kind of uh, like rote memorization. They're just, they're words that kind of roll off the tongue. Uh, and faith, there's maybe none more important to us than, than faith. We are people of faith, right? We are people who are saved by faith. Uh, and yet, uh, sometimes we can say something so often uh, that we, we start to forget exactly what it means for us to be people of faith. What does it look like to have faith? What exactly is our faith. And so this morning, I'm hoping maybe not to address all of those, but address most of those so that we can be people whose stories end like Abraham's do, uh, does, Abraham's does, in, in faith. All right. I'm going to get my grammar straightened out here as well, I promise you, before this is all over. So let's look first at, at these uh, 18 verses, how we see Abraham's faith here in the passage. And we see Abraham's faith here in the passage. Uh, as we have at other times, and as we have seen already throughout Genesis up to this point, uh, as faith expressed in obedience to God. Right? So look at these, uh, uh, cha this chapter. The first four verses for us record six sons that are born to Abraham from his wife Keturah. Now, as we read this, um, it might seem natural to assume that uh, this wife, this concubine, uh, Keturah, came after Sarah. So Sarah died, and Abraham goes out and marries this other woman and has these other sons after Sarah's death. But that's not necessarily necessary. That's not necessarily the case. Um, for starters, Genesis isn't always concerned with chronological order. Right? So it's not necessary that Sarah died, and then he took Keturah, and then had these six sons. And also, it seems a little difficult to have uh, six sons in about a 40-year gap 
that then age to the point where Abraham can, while he's still living, send them off to go live on their own in the east country. Um, what we can be sure of, however, I think, is that the, these sons, this wife and these sons, uh, were taken and born uh, sometime in the period after uh, Isaac's birth. So in the 75 years, if Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 and Abraham died at 175, sometime in that 75-year period, uh, most likely Abraham took this wife, this concubine Keturah, and had these six sons through this concubine uh, Keturah. Now, what we see here as Abraham deals with these uh, six sons of his is we see how he is obedient to the promise and the call of God to ensure that Isaac is his sole and legitimate offspring. So if you remember earlier in uh, the narrative of Abraham, when um, Isaac is born, um, uh, Ishmael begins to mock Isaac, right? And Sarah looks at Abraham and he says, listen, get rid of this slave woman and get rid of this son. And Abraham is rather reluctant to do that, right? He's rather reluctant to do that because that's his son and he's rather reluctant to send his son away. But in response to Abraham's reluctance, God comes to Abraham and he says to him, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Abraham originally was reluctant to send away Ishmael, but God tells him to do that because there cannot be any confusion as to who the legitimate offspring is, as to who the legitimate heir is. God tells Abraham it is through Isaac and through Isaac alone that your offspring is going to be named. Well, it would appear here in Genesis 25 that Abraham has now, is now fully vested in that reality Right, such that he takes steps to ensure here that Isaac is known as the sole legitimate heir and offspring of Abraham. He does this in two ways. First, he does this by giving all that he has to Isaac. Right? Look at verse 5. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. This isn't a throwaway verse here. Right? This is, this is a, a necessary statement, a necessary declaration that Abraham is is publicly making known that Isaac and Isaac alone is his heir by giving him everything that he has. Not only does he give to Isaac everything that he has, but he takes these six other sons and he sends them away to live in the East Country away from Isaac. Now, he graciously he doesn't send them away empty-handed. The scripture says that he gives to them gifts something that was not necessary at the time. It was not necessary to give the, the children of your concubine uh, uh, anything, but Abraham gives him gifts and he sends him away to live away from Isaac in the east. And so he does this because he knows his days are coming to an end and in preparation for his death, he acts in obedience, faithful obedience, because it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named and he takes every step necessary to ensure that that reality happens. And so even as Abraham is coming to the end of his life, Abraham is coming to the end of his life in faith, trusting in the Lord to do what he said he would do through Isaac, his offspring. But it's not just Abraham's faith that is on display in this text. We also see very clearly here the faithfulness of God. And I think it should be argued that the faithfulness of God is the center of the story or sits at the center of the story of Abraham. Moses wants us to clearly see God's faithfulness to Abraham throughout his life, and it's seen in several ways here in these first 18 verses. First, God's faithfulness is seen in the offspring that he gives to Abraham. 
If we go back to Genesis chapter 17 in the story of Abraham, we remember that God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, telling him, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So God promises Abraham in Genesis 17 that he's going to have a multitude of nations that come from him, a multitude of peoples that will come from him, and kings that will come from him. And now here at the end of his life, Abraham has six more sons to add to the two that he's already had and 12 princes that come from Ishmael. And so we see nation upon nation tracing their lineage back to the man Abraham. God's faithfulness is also seen in the death of Abraham. Look at verses 7 through 10 with me. It says, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. So even the way that Abraham dies, a man who dies in a good old age and full of life, is a fulfillment of a promise that God made to him earlier in chapter 15, verse 15. In chapter 15, as God is reaffirming his covenant to Abraham and as God is telling him what's going to happen to his people, namely that they will sojourn in a land that is not theirs for 400 years, and God will exercise judgment upon that nation as he brings them out and brings them back into the land, God tells Abraham, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And now here is Abraham, 175 years, being buried in a good old age. So we see God's faithfulness in the offspring that God provides. We see God's faithfulness in keeping his promise that Abraham dies and is buried in a good old age. We also see God's faithfulness in the offspring that he gives to Ishmael. Look at verses 12 through 18. It says, These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar, Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. And then 13 through 18 goes on to list the names of these offspring that are given to Ishmael. This, too, is a fulfillment of God's word, as it's declared in Genesis 16 and in Genesis 17. In Genesis 16, when Hagar Hagar is is sent out by Sarah and she she is weeping in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord comes to her and he says to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. And then in Genesis 17, verse 20, we read, As for Ishmael, this is God speaking to Abraham, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation." And so here's we look at 13 through 18, we see God doing exactly what God said he would do. He gives Ishmael 12 princes. He multiplies Ishmael, nation upon nation coming out of him. Not only that, but as we look at verse 18, it says that the people of Ishmael settled over and against all his kinsmen. Exactly what the angel of the Lord said would happen in Genesis chapter 16, verses 10 through 12. And so we see God's faithfulness as he keeps his promises to Abraham, as he does exactly what he said he would do. And so as Moses brings the story of Abraham to a conclusion, the clear focus is on the faithfulness of God to do what he said he would do for the patriarch Abraham. And this is important as we think about the role of faith, particularly as we see it in the life of Abraham in Genesis. 
If you remember, Genesis, Abraham's story really begins in Genesis chapter 12, where he's called out of Ur the Chaldeans, and he is given in that call little direction and little information. Really, when you think about the call of Abraham, he's asked to do much. Right? God comes to him and he says, leave your home and leave your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Now, some of us might not have a problem leaving family. Right? Andy and I got married uh, 18 years ago this year. We celebrate 18 years, correct? Correct. 18 years this year. And we got married uh, in North Carolina, the most beautiful place in the world. Uh, got married in the mountains of North Carolina and uh, in December 18th and January of that, ne that next year, January 2005, we, we moved away from my family who was in North Carolina, her family who was in Florida and went to seminary in Louisville. And we have not moved back near family since then. In the 18 years that we've been together and the five children that we have, we have not lived near family. Um, we have moved from state to state. We have moved from country to country. Now I say that knowing for some of you, you've lived around family your whole life. You, you've never moved outside of the same city as family. That's kind of how my sister is. I don't know that my sister's ever lived more than like 15 minutes from my parents. So some people really love to be near family, and the idea or the thought of leaving family is a difficult thing. And I, I would imagine for, for a society, a, a patriarchal society from which Abraham comes from, that the concept of the idea of separating and leaving family, leaving what you know and who you know, is a difficult thing to do. So God asks him to do much. He calls him to do much, and he doesn't give him a ton of information. Really, he says, go to the land that I'm going to show you. It's like God doesn't even give him like GPS coordinates or anything. He's just like, look, man, start walking. And, and we know how Abraham responds, right? He, he responds in faith. He gets up and he goes. We also know that with that call, God gave Abraham some really great promises as well. Right? God made some amazing promises so that in chapter 12, God says to him, as he calls him out, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless those who bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he gets called out. He gets this really great set of promises that he gets as he gets called out, and then as he journeys with the Lord, right, as he walks with the Lord, God begins to expand on those promises and make those promises a little more clear. So just a few verses after, in Genesis 12, God promises the land of Canaan to Abraham and his offspring. In Genesis 13 and 15, God promises a multitude of offspring, right? God says, look at the dust of the earth, look at the sky, look at the stars of the sky. If you can number these things, you can number your offspring. In Genesis 15, 17, and 18, God promises a son to be born from Sarah. Remember, as Abraham was going along, right, year after year, barren, Sarah remains barren, but God promises a son to be born from Sarah. And in Genesis 17, God promises that Abraham, that from Abraham will come nations and kings. And so as Abraham is journeying with the Lord, as he's walking with the Lord, the initial promise that he's given gets filled out, becomes clear, and God makes these great and wonderful promises to Abraham. But when we come to the end of his life here in Genesis 25, what we find is that the majority of these promises remain unfulfilled. Yes, he has Isaac and he has other sons, but it's not too difficult to count his offspring. In fact, if we wanted to read through, we could count his offspring. I, I, it's certainly not dust of the earth or stars of the sky at this point. And yes, Abraham has lived in Canaan for 100 years, but neither he nor his offspring possess the land. 
Right, so at the end of his life, Abraham is still waiting to receive the fullness of what God has promised to him. And this reality is not lost on the scriptures. Right? In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says in the Hebrews 11:13, speaking of Abraham and others who came before him, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Right? Hebrews affirms both the fact that Abraham died in faith and that he died in faith, not receiving the fullness of the promises that God had made to him in his life. And yet God is faithful, and Abraham dies in faith. And so God's faithfulness to Abraham informs our understanding of Abraham's faith, right? so that we see that Abraham is not placing his faith in the things promised, but he's placing his faith in the one who has promised those things. Right now, that might sound like a simple distinction, and you might literally be sitting there right now going, yeah, Dan, we get it, we know it. But the reality is, do we really get it? Do we really know that? Right? Abraham isn't hoping in the things that God has given him so much as Abraham is hoping in the God who has made these amazing promises to him. Right? Abraham's faith doesn't rest in the things he's going to get. Abraham's faith rests firmly in God who is faithful to keep his promises so that Abraham does not need to receive the fullness of all God's promises in his life in order to stay faithful to the Lord, to remain faithful to the Lord, to, to die in faith. Because he knows and believes that God is faithful. And according to Hebrews, because he knows that God is faithful, he can see and greet the fullness of God's promises from afar. And therefore, he can know that the things that God has promised will come. And so Abraham can die in faith, trusting in the faithfulness of the God who called him. And as the story of the scriptures unfold, what we see is that God is faithful to keep those promises he has made to Abraham. You and I being part of the dust of the earth and the stars of the sky, the offspring of Abraham, the father of faith. So as we think about the way Abraham's life comes to a close with this focus on the faithfulness of God in the story of Abraham and Abraham's continued faith in God, I think we're brought to a place where we're forced to ask ourselves, where is our faith resting? Where is our faith resting? Because that's an important question for us to answer when things so that, so that when things, not when things, but so that when things get difficult, we don't find ourselves shaken. All right, think about the story of Abraham again. So, so Abraham's called, and he's 75 when he's called. He's 75 when he's given these promises. And how long does he wait for uh, Isaac? This is, this is biblical, biblical trivia time. How long does he wait for Isaac? I swear that there's a candy bar on the line. I see a two and a five, a 20, 25. Am I reading that correctly? 25, thank you. So afterwards, you know Mr. Arnie, correct? You can go see him. He's, he'll give you a candy bar, all right? Tell him he has to. Tell him Dan sent you, all right? 25 years, 25 years waiting for this promise to come. I, have you ever waited 25 years for anything? I mean, some of you haven't been alive for 25 years. Have, have any, has anybody waited 25 years for anything? I don't know that I've waited 25. I can't wait 25 minutes for anything. I'm extremely impulsive. 
Imagine waiting 25 years for God to fulfill his promise. That's massive amounts of opportunity for his faith to just quit. For him just to go, whatever, I'm done. Like it's not happening. In fact, we see him struggle, right? Chapter 16, well, maybe God wants me to do it with having a son through Hagar. And God's like, no, no, no. That's not how it's going to happen. Keep waiting, buddy. So knowing in whom our faith rests or knowing where our faith rests is extremely important for us when we face difficult times, when it could be shaken to pieces. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is, is writing to a, a young Timothy to encourage and exhort him to be faithful in the ministry to which God has called him. And in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 12, Paul writes this to young Timothy. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So let's stop there for one moment, right? So Paul is writing to young Timothy. Young Timothy is as a, as a calling and a gift upon him, and Paul says, don't be ashamed, right? Don't be ashamed, but labor for the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ, knowing that you're going to encounter sufferings, right? Paul encountered sufferings. Timothy, you're going to encounter suffering. So he doesn't want young Timothy, often called timid Timothy, right, to be ashamed, to back off, to kind of shrink back from what God's calling him to do. In fact, in the same chapter, Paul says, fan into flame the gift of God that is yours through the laying on of hands. And so Paul is writing to him, encouraging him, and Paul is kind of referencing his own sufferings and difficulties, his own hardships, as he's been called to be an apostle and a teacher for this great mystery that's been revealed through Christ Jesus. And Paul grounds, he grounds his, his apostolic ministry, he grounds his, his unashamedness in serving Christ in verse 12, where he says this, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul suffers for Christ. He suffers for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. He does not shrink away. He is not ashamed of Christ. Right? He stands up for Christ in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of, of, of imprisonments and shipwrecks and everything else that comes his way. And he says he's not ashamed. Why is he not ashamed? Because he knows in whom he has believed. He knows in whom he, re he believes, and he is convinced, fully convinced, that the God in whom he has placed his faith is able to guard what's he in, what he has entrusted to Paul until that day. What is that day? It's the day of the Lord. It's a day when, when God will come in full and final righteousness and set all things right. And so Paul is able to do what he's called to do because he knows in whom he has placed his faith. Right? And that's what Abraham learned over 25 years of following the Lord, 25 years or more of following the Lord. He learned who he was trusting in. God was educating him and instructing him, saying, Abraham, know me. Know who I am. Know in whom you have placed your faith. Right? This is what Jeremiah says. God says through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 9, let the, not let the mighty man boast in his might, nor the, the rich man in his riches, nor the, the wise man in his wisdom, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me. That he knows and understands me. And so the question for us is, do we know in whom we have placed our faith? Do we know where our faith is resting? Do we know the God in whom we are trusting? 
Because if we get it muddled, if we get it mixed up, right? If, if our faith is resting in what we might get or, or the things that are promised, instead of the one who has promised those things, then there's great potential for us to be undone by hardship, by difficulty, by suffering, and by sorrow. And, and I would argue, I would argue that, forgive me if this sounds arrogant in any way, shape, or form, but I would argue that the church in America is altogether unprepared for suffering, for hardship, for sorrow, and for difficulty. So that when it does come, we will find many people who do not know in whom their faith rests. And they will be undone. They will be ashamed. They will run from Christ. They will run from the gospel. And I pray, I pray that that's not me. And I pray that that's not us. I mean, I was having uh, lunch with a friend this week and we were just, we were chatting. Uh, and of course, uh, we, we all know that the past couple years we, we've dealt with COVID. And, and so uh, you're able to see what, what one little tiny pandemic is able to do to the church, right? How many churches were undone by, by COVID? by government restrictions or by government regulations and how many churches were split or how many people just left altogether by a pandemic. It's kind of like when Jeremiah starts complaining and God goes, if you can't hang out right now, if you can't run right now, what are you going to do when I let the horses loose, Jeremiah? What are you going to do when stuff gets really difficult? And so we need to be a people who can say with Paul, I know in whom I have placed my trust, and I am convinced that he is faithful, that he is able, that he is capable to guard me and what he has entrusted to me until that day. And I think that's exactly what we see in the end of the life of Abraham. We see a man who is convinced in whom he has placed his faith and his trust. We see a man who knows the God who he is trusting and he knows that he is the faithful God who keeps his promises so that he can see them from afar and rejoice that God is faithful. We have promises that are yet to be fulfilled for us as well. We have the promises of a new heaven, a new earth, a new creation, the redemption of our bodies. And whether that's fulfilled in our lifetime or not, the question is, can we see them and greet them from afar and know that God is faithful to keep his promises and remain faithful to him? That's my prayer for us as we look at the end of the life of Abraham, that as this wonderful journey, scripturally, narratively, is brought to an end, we see a man who has grown in faith, and he's grown in faith because he knows more the God in whom he trusts. And so my prayer for us is that we would know the God in whom we trust. We would know that he is the faithful God, the God who keeps promises, the God who is faithful to his covenantal promises to his people. And so because of that, we would only grow in faith and trust and dependence upon him so that when difficulty, hardship, trials, struggles come our way, our faith will not be shaken because we know that the one who holds us will never let us go because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of these wonderful truths built upon the faithfulness of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that you keep your promises. And Father, I pray that you would help us to know you more. That as we all individually and corporately together as brothers and sisters in Christ are journeying on this, this, this story, this journey of faith 
that we would individually and corporately together grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we'd grow in our knowledge and understanding of who you are, and that as we see you in greater clarity and greater understanding, that we would, that we would rejoice all the more in your faithfulness and that our faith would become all the more strong because our knowledge of you has become all the more uh, increased. And so, Father, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to believe and trust in you, to know you, and to rest in you, we pray, so that our life, Father, can end as Abraham's life did, in faith, in a good old age, trusting in the God who has called us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And so I speak these words of Christ over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let us go this week striving to know all the more the faithful God who has called us to himself.